Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today we're talking about how we can bring science back into decision making and bring it back better. And stick around after the interview. Dr. Christy Dahl shares five important climate lessons we should keep top of mind in 2021. Well, it's been a roller coaster couple of weeks since our last episode. An insurrection, a presidential inauguration, and the ongoing toll of the pandemic. I hope everyone is doing okay. I'm doing my best to get back to some of my day-to-day routines, where I take a lot of things for granted. Like I assume the milk I buy from the store isn't spoiled. That my car's airbags will work in a crash. And that the Tylenol in my cabinet isn't filled with poison. And I can thank a federal scientist for that. Their analysis and research are vital to agencies like the EPA, the FDA, the CDC, and NOAA, which keep people safe and healthy. But under the previous administration, evidence was ignored, scientists were censored, and facts that contradicted political agendas were suppressed like never before, threatening our well-being. President Biden has made clear that he's going to, quote, listen to the scientists, end quote. So far, many outstanding scientists have been appointed to senior-level positions in the administration. And tomorrow, we're expecting some bold executive actions from President Biden on scientific integrity and science-based policy that will set the stage for the administration's plan to restore and strengthen the role of science in government decisions. But because of the unprecedented sidelining of science over the last four years, much more action will need to be taken. To understand all the fixes and new policies needed, I reached out to Dr. Gretchen Goldman, Research Director for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's an environmental engineer, an expert in federal scientific integrity, and has spent the last decade pushing back hard against attacks on science. But remember this. While the last administration took science to a new low, they were certainly not the first to interfere with federal science. And unless we can build a better system for scientists under the new administration, it will only happen again. Gretchen and I discuss what scientific integrity looks like in practice, what happens when it's missing, and some of the promising signs she's already seen from President Biden. Gretchen, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So before we get started, I, I do have to ask you, was that you on the cover of The New Yorker in November? <laughs> it sure looked like it. I uh, took a photo of uh, my behind the scenes from uh, a CNN interview that I did uh, from my house. And you can see toys scattered across the ground and uh, my my ch- child's um, stuff everywhere. And uh, the New Yorker cover looks very similar in terms of um, content and angle and everything. Yes, just missing the martini. <laughs> yes. Can you define the role of science in our government? What are some examples of how federal science plugs into the system? Across the government, science plays a key role in all kinds of things that you and I might not even think about in our daily lives, but there's often a government scientist behind the scenes uh, making sure that 
something is safe and healthy and protecting people. Um, so this is everything from the safety of the products that are in our homes, our children's car seats, our vehicles, our drugs, our air and our water, of course. Uh, and this keeps the nation running. It allows us to go about life in ways that are uh, far safer and, you know, increasing our quality of life over what has existed in the past. And so we can thank government scientists for all of the work that they do to get us a better world. So essentially, I will either have the information at my disposal to determine if something's safe for me to use, or I can trust that it's safe to use because products and food and everything has been examined to some extent by federal scientists. Right. We have programs and expertise and all kinds of things. And that's a huge infrastructure that we have to keep running in order to fulfill all of those agency missions and and keep everyone safe and healthy and keep our landscapes clean and, and all kinds of things. And so it's really a huge role that can be underappreciated because we don't see it in our day to day. I don't want a specific number, but can you just characterize how out of balance scientific expertise is at the end of the Trump administration? We've seen federal science and scientists take a hit under the Trump administration. Unlike anything we have seen before, the Trump administration has dismissed, sidelined, suppressed science in new ways and importantly at a very alarming rate uh, that we haven't seen under past administrations. We've of course known about interference in federal science for a long time, and it's something that happens under every administration, under both parties, because science is such a powerful tool when you're trying to enact policy that it makes it very vulnerable to interference, because if science is on your side, that's a really good tool to have if you're trying to win a policy debate. And so that's why we have to safeguard it and make sure that we don't allow those kinds of situations to happen. And under the Trump administration, we saw uh, where a lot of those vulnerabilities exist and where our existing scientific integrity infrastructure and other protections aren't good enough. And we need uh, to do more to really protect science, especially when we have an administration that's openly hostile to science, which is what we've seen in the past four years. So one priority that will need to be addressed is is thinking about how to come back from that damage and how do we better protect federal science and scientists. So we now have a chance to rebuild federal scientific capacity. There's been a lot of talk about the need to not simply refill positions and rebuild capacity, but to to rebuild something better, more just and equitable, what are some ways that we can do that? That is a really important point because we don't want to just restore the way things were in 2016. We want to do more and think of new ways to put in protections. So one thing that is the government's role is addressing inequities that exist in who is served by the government. So we see this in kinds of things like who is exposed to air pollution and water pollution. There's huge inequities in this country in the air that people 
breathe. And that is part of the job of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is to uh, address those inequities, to improve air quality, uh, especially for communities at the fence line of industrial facilities and other places where they are getting disproportionate impacts of air pollution. Um, And so that's something that should have been happening in the last four years. And it was a problem Um, of course, long before the Trump administration came in. So I'm very hopeful that the Biden administration will come in and really tackle that issue a lot. Uh, The Biden team has a really great environmental justice plan that is going to provide for a lot of community input and think bigger about how to prioritize those underserved communities. And so uh, I'm very hopeful that they will Uh, work hard on that and prioritize that. And I think that's one area where there's a huge opportunity to build back better and not just restore, you know, the existing infrastructure that that did leave leave some communities behind. I think we can do a lot more in terms of addressing those inequities, making sure that everyone can really breathe uh, cleaner air. And under the Trump administration, so many pollution safeguards have been rolled back that it's making the situation worse. Yeah, absolutely. At the beginning of 2020, we did a paper looking at one of those Trump administration decisions, which would allow uh, companies to emit more hazardous air pollutants. Uh, So these are things like benzene and other cancer-causing pollutants. And we found that many facilities across the country could increase their emissions uh, without any scrutiny from from the government. They could do that and it would release more pollution into communities that are already bearing a larger burden of, of pollution from industrial facilities. So we've got plenty of work to do to build back, build back better. How would you tackle this? So there's a couple things they can do right out of the gate. Uh, I One is the capacity issue, just trying to hire more uh, people to do the work because we know there's a, a backlog of work that needs to be done and, and we need people to do all these new initiatives that we're talking about. Another really early uh, thing they can do that we're, we're, we're already seeing happen is uh, appoint uh, effective qualified leaders to federal science agencies. So this has um, this happens during the transition period, usually for most science agencies. And so we've we've seen the Biden administration appoint a lot of uh, people that are well qualified. They have strong backgrounds in science and policy, uh, and they have they are committed to addressing climate change and environmental justice and uh, all the things the administration has said will be a priority. Uh, So this is a big um, first step because we want to have people at the helm that uh, can start to build back trust within uh, the ranks of federal agencies. And uh, we want them to be effective leaders in being able to get a lot of this work done very quickly. So what are some of the the more challenging, the longer term fixes? There will be some things that will take a lot more time to really build back. Uh, The government, of course, does not uh, work very fast in a lot of ways. And um, a lot of that is is good, uh, but it means that there will be things that it will take a long time to uh, repair. Um, so one is is undoing some of the specific things that were harmful that the Trump administration has done. Uh, so this includes a lot of the the rules that they have put out that undermine the ability of 
the EPA and other agencies to make science-based policies in the first place. Um, because of the way the rulemaking process works, it takes several years to repair those kinds of things because you have to go through uh, all of the steps to get a rule. And so that some of the specific damages will take a few years to build back. Another one is around science advice, so federal science advisory committees, which is a vast network of uh, ways that the federal government gets expertise from the broader scientific community. So on all of the, the things we talked about from drug approvals to environmental quality to uh, worker safety, there are federal committees of scientists from academia and other places outside government that volunteer their time and expertise to inform agency decision-making. So this is a, a really great way that the government gets science advice on uh, all kinds of things, but it was very underutilized and blatantly cut off in the Trump administration in a few places. And so uh, one broader task for the Biden administration will be to rebuild that network, to build up new community, new committees, get more qualified people on those committees for the committees where they've been replaced by uh, conflicted or unqualified people, um, and also just getting that system going again. A lot of the committees just haven't been meeting, and, and that has a lot of consequences, both on the ability of the government to make science-based decisions, and then ultimately on uh, people, because if we aren't getting the best available science into policy decisions, then that filters down to affecting everyone's air quality and water quality and ability to have safe food and safe drugs. Uh, and so it really matters that we want uh, the science advice to be the best possible. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview, Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not subscribed, it's super easy and free. Just look us up in any podcast app. And if you're on Twitter, come chat with us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So the, the scientific advisory committees, they're, they're almost like an active peer review or action peer review or something. It's Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. It's, it's kind of a public policy-oriented peer review, um, which is really incredible to see. I mean, the of course, the, the minute by minute is uh, going to seem like a long, boring science meeting, but it, it's really neat to see that public ability to, to see how scientists operate and how they think about challenges. And, you know, it's right at this nexus of science and policy where the rubber hits the road. And it's, it's, it, it's seeing that in action is, is really neat because it, it is sort of these challenging questions, but you end up getting really great input because the scientists there have broad and diverse expertise and they can all contribute. And so in the end, you get this really uh, thoughtful, uh, robust science advice that feeds into government decisions. I want to talk about scientific integrity for a minute. 
Wrapping my head around how scientific integrity works in government, it, it kind of makes my eyes glaze over a little bit. Yeah, it, it is sort of a, a wonky <laughs> esoteric thing from uh, federal agencies and thinking about scientific integrity and what does that mean and, and how does that, why does that matter? But there's actually a lot of concrete ways where we see that it does matter. And, you know, one um, recent example around coronavirus that we could think of is there are federal agency policies about whether or not uh, scientists can talk directly to the media and the public or whether they need approval from uh, political officials. And uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists has always advocated that scientists should be able to talk uh, publicly without needing permission from political officials. And this is an important provision that a lot of agencies have put into their scientific integrity policies that, that do, and so do grant that, that right to scientists. But what we've seen under the Trump administration is that places that don't have that strong policy provision in place uh, have suffered more on that point. Um, we've seen, for example, Dr. Uh, Fauci, who, of course, is in very high demand for media interviews. He has said, and it's come out, that he was prevented from doing a lot of uh, media interviews around coronavirus. And that's really unfortunate for the reasons we're talking about, that we need timely information to get out to the public that affects people's choices about what's safe and what's not safe. So that is something where it's very clear we could strengthen the policies and that would have a clear impact on the ability of federal agencies to meet their missions and get information out to the public. Uh, and so that's one piece of uh, what we're recommending and making sure that all agencies have very strong scientific integrity policies that protect the science and scientists that are doing that work. Is there a way to enforce scientific integrity policies? We need to do more to make sure they're effectively in practice. Uh, that is one thing that we saw as a challenge under the Trump administration is that uh, the policies were uh, designed with the idea that you'd have a, a president, an administration that cared about following policy and doing what's right. And that's, of course, not what we've seen. And so, you know, it, it creates new challenges when the people that are violating the policy are not people embedded within the agencies, but the very leaders of the, themselves uh, of the agencies. So uh, we need to think bigger about how do we put these in effective practice at all levels? You know, where are these gaps? How can we better change the culture so that um, these are effectively in place and federal employees feel empowered to follow them? So I'm very hopeful that the Biden administration will prioritize this issue. So I know you're excited about the executive actions the administration is signing tomorrow on scientific integrity and science-based policymaking, which seem like great first steps. Have you come up with recommendations for the first hundred days of the Biden administration? We have a comprehensive set of recommendations for the administration. We call it a, a science roadmap. So these are all the things that uh, the Biden administration could and should do that it doesn't need Congress to do uh, that would strengthen the role of science and the ability of science to be independent and protect the scientists doing the work. So we have recommendations on several key agencies, including the EPA, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, the Department 
Department of the Interior, um, as well as some specific topics that we know need to be addressed, like equity and environmental justice and uh, addressing conflicts of interest in uh, decision-making, how to strengthen those scientific integrity policies that we talked about. There's uh, a lot of really specific actions they could take, and we have developed that based on all of the work that we've done in recent years to understand and track and analyze what has happened under the Trump administration. So we've, based on the existing policies, based on surveying thousands of federal scientists, and based on analyzing the policies that do exist, we've learned a tremendous amount about what does and doesn't work in terms of protecting science and scientists. And so we can use all of that knowledge from these past four years and and even prior to recommend what needs to be the priority and how we can move forward. And so we've compiled all of those details for the administration and anyone um, the people who will be charged with uh, thinking about these issues within the White House and within federal agencies. What would you want scientists to do to help? The broader scientific community can play a big role in getting a lot of progress in the coming years. I think it is important to remember that we didn't solve the problem just by electing a president who seems like there'll be more science supporting. We need to make sure that we actually get concrete policy changes in place that will protect science and scientists, even in the event that we get a future administration that isn't interested in uh, respecting science. So I want to emphasize that the work's not over. We need to really make sure that these issues are prioritized and, you know, we can't get comfortable in, in thinking that we're all set here. So I would want scientists to stay engaged, stay active in informing policy. Um, we're going to need uh, people to continue to uh, encourage the administration to prioritize these issues that they are important and, and give specific uh, recommendations because we want them to continue to think about this issue and do the the hard work of getting concrete changes in place. So I'm hopeful and and looking forward to working on on some of those important challenges and, and making good progress in the coming years. Well, thanks for joining me, Gretchen. It's really uh, comforting to know that you are keeping your eye on on all of these issues for us. Thank you. I think it's human nature to try to find the lessons in every hardship we experience, which means 2020 was the most vicious, knuckle-slapping teacher many of us have ever learned from. But just because it's over doesn't mean we can stop thinking about some of its ongoing problems, namely the devastating effects of climate change. Here to make sense of the lessons we should take with us into 2021 is my amazing colleague, Dr. Christy Dahl, a senior climate scientist. Thanks, Colleen. And I agree, I could have used the learning with a lot less pain. So I'll try to walk us through the five lessons on climate for this year as gently as I can. Lesson number one, climate change is showing up in our daily lives. I'm not just talking about extreme events like wildfires, hurricanes, flooding, heat waves, typhoons, or locust swarms, all of which happened last year. And those are all clear indicators of our changing climate. I'm also talking about the strangely warm winter temperatures on the East Coast, the spring that arrives too early, or closer to my home, the lack of summertime fog in my neck of the Bay Area. 
A study released last year concluded that from 2012 onward, the fingerprints of climate change can be detected from any single day in the global record. So whether we perceive it or not, on any given day, climate change is already affecting our lives. Lesson two, we have got to take a broader view on intersecting risks. So climate change intersects with COVID-19, civil unrest, water quality issues, financial insecurity, racial inequities in access to healthcare and housing, and countless other issues that could be perceived as unrelated. For just one example of how these risks compound, we can look to Louisiana, where this summer, during a heat wave, hundreds of thousands of people had no power and no water for days, if not weeks, after Hurricane Laura. So people needed help rebuilding, surviving, and staying safe from COVID-19 and the heat while having no way to wash their hands at home. The impacts of climate change reach deeply into so many different systems, and we have to be ready for all of those consequences. Lesson three, COVID-19 and climate change are racial injustices. The pandemic has taken a particularly devastating toll on Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous communities. Um, and just one example, as of June, nearly one in three Black Americans personally knew someone who had died from COVID-19, compared with about one in 10 white Americans. The disproportionate impacts of climate change are yet another injustice that racism inflicts on communities of color. And we won't be able to address challenges like climate change and COVID-19 without addressing systemic racism. Lesson four, we need to drastically cut our emissions, but not like that. So carbon dioxide emissions are expected to have dropped by about 7% globally and about 11% in the US in 2020. Now that drop was the result of widespread economic and emotional pain caused by the pandemic. And it's not the kind of transformative and intentional change that we need to meet our climate goals. We do need to accomplish similar reductions in emissions every year for the next 10 years to be on track to, to really limit future warming. But we have to do this in ways that encourage economic stability, improve people's quality of life, reduce racial inequities, and ensure a just transition to safe, well-paying jobs for people whose livelihoods are in the fossil fuel industry. And finally, lesson five. In the US and around the world, there's cause for hope. In the US, climate change was finally a prominent topic among voters who elected a president and vice president who understand the science behind climate change and embrace the need for rapid transformative action. President-elect Biden has announced nominees and appointees who have long focused on issues of climate change and justice. And internationally, China's pledge to achieve net zero emissions by 2060, and similar pledges from the EU, the UK, Japan, and South Korea are also really encouraging. So while we can't erase the past years of climate inaction, there are signs that we may begin to write our path in earnest in 2021. There's a tremendous amount of work ahead, but for the first time in years, with these lessons in mind, I find myself hopeful that we'll start to see more meaningful progress on climate action in 2021. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science Podcast. 
Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Gretchen Goldman. Climate Lessons for 2021 was brought to you by Dr. Christy Dahl. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, stay safe, wear your masks, and see you next time.